it's important just as child protective services does not always find abuse, neither do we at Center for America. And so the way that we like the system to be is to have a low threshold for reporting at the front line. So those are the pediatricians, the hospital folks, the emergency department folks. We want low threshold. And then if we look at the injury... I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today, we're talking about sexual abuse. Joining me here in the podcast studio is Dr. Nancy Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg is the Division Chief for Child Abuse Pediatrics at the University of Texas Health Science Center, and she also works at the Center for Miracles. Dr. Kellogg, you completed medical school and pediatric residency at the University of Texas Health Science Center, and you evaluate children and adolescents for suspected abuse or neglect at the Center for Miracles. You're a professor of pediatrics and You've served as a medical director of the Forensic Nurse Examiner Program at Children's Hospital of San Antonio for 16 years and program director, establishing one of the first child abuse pediatric fellowships following accreditation of a new specialty. You were appointed for six years to the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Child Abuse since 2006, and you've served as the medical editor for the American Board of Pediatric Child Abuse Pediatric Subboard for 17 years. You've been helping children who suffer from abuse since 1988. Yeah. What a difference you're making, and it must be such a hard job. I'm so honored to have you here in, in the podcast studio. Oh, thank you. When we're talking about physical abuse, I would say to the biggest focus, the biggest concern would be in very young infants. So we have a term called sentinel injuries. And so sentinel injuries are unexplained injuries, bruises that are visible on a pre-mobile infant. And so with sentinel injuries, if we have a child that has an unexplained bruise on the chest or an unexplained subconjunctival hemorrhage or has a lacerated frenulum, which is the tissue inside the mouth, and we don't know why, we don't have a good explanation for it, those are things that need to be reported. Our infants are at greatest risk for the severe, life-threatening type of abuse. And so mm -hmm. those are the things that we need to report. We also need to do the complete medical workup. So there's a lot involved with that. It'll be blood work. We're looking for bleeding disorders, but we're also looking for what we call more subtle or occult injuries, like small fractures that might be in that baby. So we would be doing x-rays and we'd be doing CT scans. Those are the ones that are the, have the highest concern. <laughs> As they get older, it really changes because the children get mobile. They're going to fall. They're going to get bruises. And we have to begin to look at where the bruises are. Is there a pattern to it that suggests an object was being used? What does the child say about the injury? So it's I cannot overstate the importance of a child's history. When you have a child who's verbal and who can tell you how they got that bruise or how they got that injury, I think it needs to be taken seriously. The same, especially the sexual abuse. If you ask a child 
you know, what happened or if they're beginning to, to disclose sexual abuse, is to listen carefully. It's very hard for kids to talk about their abuse. And when you're attentive and you're receptive and you acknowledge your fear and you acknowledge their anxiety in telling you, that goes a long way in trying to help that child speak up and to for the next steps to happen to make sure that child's safe. Um, I always thank children that talk to me I, every single time. <laughs> I think we have to remember, especially when we talk about sexual abuse, it takes about two years for a kid to tell about sexual abuse, for a child to tell someone about sexual abuse. Mm. And over those two years, a lot of things are happening. They are constantly debating whether to tell. And if they're school age, they're old enough to understand that if I tell, it might break up my family, somebody might go to jail, my mom is going to be unhappy, all of these things. My little brother will lose his parent. So all of these things are going through this child's head, and they're constantly thinking about, should I tell, should I not tell? I need to keep it secret. So when a child first tells, it's very important that they know that the person that they're talking to believes them. You don't have to take off your friend or your parent hat when somebody is telling you about abuse. You need to be listening to what they're saying, and you need to accept it. And you need to convey that you believe them. Because right at that point, that's critical. When kids first tell, they have these super sensitive antennas out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they know, they're reading your nonverbal. They're reading your verbal. They're, they're trying to see, does this person believe me? And so if you like, well, are you sure that happened? Or maybe it was just a dream. Kids are going to, they're going to take back what they said at that when they hear that, if there's any doubt, they would take it back. And so I would say that if you're one of the first people, if you're the first person that a child is telling, it's very important that you listen, you have empathic listening, and that you say, I believe you, I want to help you. This is what we need to do next. Dr. Kelly, what do you recommend we do next? When you have a child that has made a clear statement, and it yeah, you know, I think you just have to verify that because if you say so-and-so hurt me, that can mean a lot of things. That could be sibling play. <laughs> that could be anything. And so just knowing if you get to the point where you have a child who's verbal, who understands speech, who's normal development for their age, can understand your questions uh, and can respond appropriately to questions, and they indicate that they were sexually abused, this person touched them in a place they should not have been touched, then I think the response is first, thank you for telling me. I really appreciate that you trusted me with this. We need to do some things to keep you safe right here and now. This is what I'm going to do. And so you always want to be transparent. With kids, you don't want to make promises you can't keep. You can't say, this will never happen to you again. You don't know that. you know. But you can say, I'm going to tell you everything I'm going to do, and I will explain it to you. So, of course, what happens next depends a little bit on the situation. So if a child is telling you and you're not in the family, if you're a professional, you say, first thing we need to do is to talk to your mom about this. 
and we're going to need to talk to some other people that can come and help figure out everything that's going on. And they can also make a plan to be sure that you're safe. You know, so, and, and again, that may be too strong a promise, <laughs> but to say they're going to come and look at ways to keep you safe, I think would be an appropriate thing to do. You have to be so careful about what you say to kids. You don't, again, want to make them promise. Your heart jumps out to them. You, you want to tell them it's not going to happen. You want to make it better. But all you really can do is to be honest and transparent with the child and respectful and grateful that they told you. So say if we're in the exam room setting for the pediatrician, you thank the child, then you can discreetly call CPS. The parent doesn't need to know you're doing that because what if it is the parent or caregiver who brought the child in who's right there in the exam room? Right. Well, and that's why it's important when a child makes a statement to you, you need to understand who the adult is that's with the child right now. And with sexual abuse, many times it's the the mom bringing the child in, and many times it's not the mom who's the sex offender. So if it's not the abuser that's bringing the child in, I think it, and that's the person that the child is closest to, I think you need to work with the child to say, look, we need to tell mom, you can be in the room, you can tell her. I can tell her with you in the room what would you feel most comfortable with. So you can offer some options. It's going to be anxiety-provoking for the child when they realize their parent is going to have to know. But if you have a situation where you don't know who's hurt the child, for example, which does happen more times when we're looking at physical injuries, then it's difficult because you don't know how much to tell the parent that's there. If there's any concern that that parent could be the one that's hurting the child, then you have to think about what your plan is. If you have an injury in a very young child, one thing to consider is transferring them to the hospital before the workup, and then they can be in that safe setting. And CPS would sometimes respond more quickly to that. So they would come to the hospital and begin to collect information then. So there's there's a lot of kind of case-by-case scenarios that can happen. CPS can have this reputation of, and what we hear on the news, like kind of being overwhelmed. Caseworkers can't really give the time that's needed. And then a child goes back to the family and then that child is killed. You know, you see, hear stories like that and... What do you say to that? There's pro- there's all these other things where they're helping the family. That's not what you see on TV TV news or reading the I, newspaper. I know. And my I, I admire people who go into child protection work. I do too. Because they deal with a lot more than we do as professionals, and they take a lot more flack mm-hmm. from all ends from not just parents, you have angry, screaming parents often, you have frustrations, you have doubt, maybe things are not black and white, what do you do? It is, I admire people that go into that, especially people that stay in the work, because expertise is so important in this field, and yet there's not much incentive to stay with. I would just say that professionals should be cooperative with child protection. And you can be, because if you suspect 
abuse and you report it, you are free to share that information without consent of the parent with anybody who's investigating the case. And so being making sure that you explain your concern in clear terms that CPS can understand, being available for questions. You know, they struggle because they constantly are trying to get information from so many different professionals and so many different individuals and collaboratives, and it's a never-ending task, so it takes a long time to do that. But if you can make yourself available and be helpful to them, it makes their job so much easier. And should you request that it be confidential if you're the pediatric practitioner making this call? By law, if you're the reporter, it is confidential. And you can make that statement, but it is supposed to be confidential, yes. And Dr. Kellogg, so so you work at a place called the Center for Miracles, and you all are standing by. There's always someone on call. You're on call right now where a pediatrician, a pediatric practitioner, or someone on their team could call and and talk to you. We have an on-call number. And yes, we take calls from all different kinds of folks. We're also on call 24-7 for CPS. So there are workers that are in the field. What do you think of this? What do I do? Do I send this child to the hospital? We are trying to help them with those situations as well. Of course, we do an assessment. We still don't have all the information. CPS has a lot more information than we do. They know more about the circumstances in the home. They know more about the background. They know more about whether it's been previous referred. They hold all of the information. So you're not the one making the determination. So the second thing to remember is that when you report, it doesn't always end up being validated, not a one-way street where the report happens, child taken out of the home, parents' custody is taken away, that's actually a very uncommon situation when you report suspected abuse. That doesn't happen very often. And most of the referrals that CPS gets are not validated for abuse and neglect. So to keep that in mind, but the other thing is to remember about CPS is they can provide the resources. They can make those other things happen if parents are having struggles. Perhaps they have a history. (laughs) Perhaps they have an untreated disorder of some kind, whether it's a medical or mental disorder. CPS can be a resource to help those parents get healthier. We do know that children do well when they have healthy parents, when they have healthy caregivers. You know, what kids need is a safe, secure, nurturing relationship with another person. Well, that other person can't provide that if they are dealing with their own issues, you know, their own, you know, maybe they can't, they're worried about money or they're worried about food. You know, you talk about the social determinants of health, that plays into it too. So knowing that the caregiver, if they get help, they can care for their child better. CPS can play a role in making that happen as well. They are always looking at ways for that to happen and they are very much aware of the resources that would be available to families for that. Uh, one thing to know is that child sexual abuse has been declining a little bit in numbers through the years, just kind of a slow decline. That's the good news. Yes. <laughs> the bad news is, is that it's still a silent type of child abuse. It really depends on the child telling someone. That's how we learn about it. And many children still struggle 
with letting somebody know that they've been sexually abused. It's still very difficult for so many kids to tell. But yet that's the most common way that we diagnose is that a child would tell someone that they've been sexually abused. And on average, it's not until at least two years? On average, what we found, we've done a couple of studies, and we did one many years ago, more than 20 years ago, and then one about five years ago. And in both of those studies, it was interesting to note that the average time was about two years, 2.3 years. Some children, of course, tell right away, and they may be seen in a hospital setting, but for many of those other children that are outside that acute window, they're waiting months to years to tell someone. I know you have more than 135 publications, and you've been invited to present at numerous national and international conferences. What's the biggest question you get about sexual abuse? Wow, about sexual abuse? Well, first they want to know why I'm still doing this. <laughs> Yep. But um, what do you say? And what I say is that I really think it's a privilege and an honor to meet with these children. I'm kind of a glass half full kind of person. I am too. The fact that they told somebody and they're in my office and we're talking and we're making sure you're healthy and safe, those are all positive things. I worry about the children that haven't told because if it's happening in their home, they're living with this adversity every day. and who are they turning to? Where are they going to find safety and peace? <laughs> so I, I do think this is a privilege. I really do enjoy talking with the children that I meet. And part of that is because they teach me something new. Every time I talk with a child, I learn something new about how to do it better next time. You know, And I think a lot of this relates to what we call trauma-informed care. It's understanding you know, how to have a conversation with someone who has experienced something that's changed their life. And that's a, a skill that has to be ever-improving. Always find ways to do it better. So I've changed a lot. They taught me so much. They've given me so much. Children have an amazing capacity for forgiveness. And that always astounds me, too. You know, you talk to a child and... They're not interested in the other person going to jail. They don't have any anger. They just mm. want their childhood back. They want a life where they're feeling safe and secure. And those are such basic things that we assume children have. And we have to remember that some children don't have that. And it's something they yearn for. Wow. And, and sometimes you're, I'm sure, talking to kids, there's cases where they still, no matter what, will not say what's happened, and then they, that child may test positive for a sexually transmitted disease or something, and so you know they didn't t tell, or what do you do there? It's got to be so yeah, hard. Those are, those are difficult situations, and actually it's an interesting question because what we are finding is that the more severe the abuse is and the younger the child, for example, if children are subjects of pornography, that involve other people, so actually filmed sexual acts, those children are the least likely to tell anybody. <sighs> so it, that's an alarming thing to think about. So the more severe the sexual abuse, the less likely they are to actually tell someone what's happened, even though we know. We know because we have video, or we know because we have an infection, or we know because we have an injury. So that's 
that's very, that means that the child is probably groomed to the point where they are not going to tell anybody. Mm, that is so terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying to think of those children. That is a, a minority of the group, but it's still one that we worry about because those are the hardest to find sometimes. And Nancy, is that because of the trauma, like a protective mechanism, or we just don't know? It's It could be protective mechanisms. It could be, and some, some of the children we see have such trauma that they completely dissociate. Or it could just be what we call grooming. So they've been told that they should never, ever tell and that they are as much a part of the abuse. They're not, this isn't being done to them, it's being done with them. Mm. So they begin to change their mindset of how they view their own abuse. And so that's sometimes the reason why these kids won't tell. Is there a misconception out there about abusers and people who are grooming kids that there are these mean people who are obviously bad guys, you know, or it's it's really, they're often seemingly very nice to the child? Yeah. So you cannot recognize somebody who sexually abuses kids on the street. You cannot recognize children who have been sexually abused on the street. There's nothing about them that looks off. Most of the time, they just look like normal people. When people are sexually abusing children, they usually begin that process by being nice, by paying attention to the child. Those talks by basically and it violating the trust. The child should be pressured to have to feel happy all the time. No one's happy all the time. Right. Tell me something about the your day. It may sometimes feel funny. They are touching a dog, and they look up to anything. It bothers guidance. Do they think adults so, are the ones that are right. You know, we like and they're taught great. to not pay notes. We like talk back to the mom or dad or to the teacher. Or that's not everything. Yeah, I think sometimes kids. So they may struggle with everything. Whatever happens to you, if it's an adult, the things that they know what they're doing, you just have to So again, looking for those topics. I think it's less so now because I feel like parents... And a lot of parents might be thinking like, oh, this... I think they this wouldn't happen to my child. That makes you feel uncomfortable. Right. I want to know. Yeah, I think you know what we you don't want it. To I've always said that the best prevention for sexual abuse would be to goes up and have a bunch of little kids <laughs> with a shirt right. that says "I." I think to know that. So when it people happen, perpetrate everybody abuse children, they children are looking for a certain child. You know, they're looking for a child who's the whole of them does happen. Somebody on level. Quiet, someone who does Especially it. sexual got abuse, the demographic or is just something that widespread. bothers. That's the kind of so, child they want. Yeah, so, so the denial can be different. Counter that to the child that. who you look at them and you say, you know, that's very important to really hear what the child says. I'm going to say in denial or you It doesn't have to be something to have to them. It can be something so being aware of the child. They're going to be open to it. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing to me. And well, so I think it's really more tell me a that little type of mentality. I hear yeah, you know, I would today. tell them, you know, you know tell me, only tell me a little bit. And I think it's just the more open communication about those more. issues. And, and I, that can be the best for that the child know on your relationship your time. When you say it's right, I'm ready to hear more if you want to share that. I know it's kind of, it's a hot button topic, but do you have any advice for parents about so what sleepovers, do you summer camp, 
say uh, to families, there's parents who won't ever let their kids what should we spend be the night saying? at another child's house or go regularly to, camp, to, and to then kids. The opposite and our, our children. Between. I mean, right? You so th- and then how can I, I you really that, know someone? You know, we have where they're going. You know, then we have to spend the night. intervention after. Yeah, I think that's a tricky topic. Look at it and guidance with parents. You would investigate daycare. You might send your child your child know something about find opportunities to discuss how their day I will but just also say to pick my up parents, I've had that some very start situation. Child may say, I taught something today. And maybe my kids were busy <laughs> making dinner or something like that. And it's like in context okay. of a camp. Pick up on that. Over They're testing the waters. Uh, so, so they make a vague statement they may like be that. Happening, Sometimes they I haven't something seen really need to be discussed. Is it usually? Yeah. You haven't and seen any of those. That's great to hear. And is it? Is it more child, typically yeah. someone who lives some, in the home uh, or is it cared? For the child well, to know, even if I can't talk about it right now, I'm going to come back and talk abuse happening in the dad home and, and, and have the opportunity to about it. Or have, so pick up on some of those subtle cues because kids will touch at the water. It says something to so when we do know that to make them decide, I can say more. Teenagers. As well. No, it's better not people outside the home. So they're making the decisions. They're more likely to tell that. And way. picking up on consequences that, what kids are saying, I think, is important. Uh, few, if you will. Then it's not about breaking up a family. <laughs> it's not about, it, you know, dis- disrupting the family structure of any kind. It's not about. I, I think it's about. Well, you can say you're not going to be in trouble. Some kids would just hear be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. You know, it's just a little bit like when we go into a physical exam. We say it's not going to hurt. All home. they hear is hurt. Mm-hmm. Why not hurt the child? Not use that word. Right. That's a good, <laughs> really good point. Yeah. So I think just they're touching base, talking to children. So if somebody is if you go to pick up on something and you start to talk to the child and they seem hesitant, for most children, it's important to say okay. Not being forced, say whatever you need to say. Okay, is enough for that. And not they can tell. Not get too much into the language. It may trigger a negative. Let's look at a couple of cases. I that type. You you had a patient. Brisa, the pediatric practitioner, am I pronouncing her name correctly? As we all know, they um, have so, so much coming so you, at them. They're, you've right never now, met her, flu, but COVID, only her RSV, so much Tell me about stuff. That. And it so can be overwhelming so much to keep up with. But when it comes to child sexual why abuse, it's that listening. And I would... It's listening. They're very much one inside new. What children about really need are safe, secure, and especially in the context of when it's and if they have that and what that they will understand that, how that happens, how they're groomed, how the also if they have that they can get through stressors. And the so behind that bothers them, but they have a caregiver. I never met her. I never met her parent. But parents reached out to me because I had published a and also they would so look at it's really and they were from Bolivia. constantly building they are in Bolivia. in Bolivia. I think relationship they have a very different view can really affect violence. The choices a child makes uh, as they, they get older about whether to it's not to do something that might get them in trouble versus not. Really, the child the child is worried about what mm. their parent. No, it's really the thing. child, and that's the child shouldn't tell because they it. could. So that's why cause that, that other person to go to jail. Making time to talk with the child alone. And so. 
It's well, hard, and it's sometimes just not possible. The first thing with that the came out was now. the parents did not but understand why she waited to know. Is to and do it so on a frequent we discussed, basis. We discussed doing so to talk through emails and faxes, and it doesn't that you, nature. The child why should feel pressure to have to feel happy all the time. No one's happy all case, the time. Tell me something about your day. It made you feel funny, or made you feel awkward. The voice kind of thing bothered you. He knew her, so he knew what to say to make sure. We like the good braids. We like the Newspapers. We like parents would be devastated by this if you tell them. That's not he everything. He was a family member. It wasn't an immediate family member. So they may struggle with other things, but not uh, be used to talking about uh, remote family things members. Things that don't feel so good. Um, I'll do this to your <laughs> so sister. So again, you're looking for those topics and those opportunities. Okay, so this went on, and then and, and, whole and a lot of parents might be thinking like, "Oh, this family, this wouldn't happen to my child." That he was an upstanding, yeah, young man. You don't want they to held him up as a role child. And so, they just, so, so the two of them were all engaged the in community projects <laughs> trying to build not right. things, education. Um, I think to know that, and they were doing this together, it does have lots of access. Everybody. Mm. And so I was so just trying to help the parents. You know, she was also suicidal. suicidal. She was the whole spectrum. herself happened at that point. At all levels. She finally um, came out and talked it's about actually it. actually sexual abuse. The family was the one that really... Just try to give her so talk about denial, secure, nurturing relationship to get past. Bruce's family, Bruce's parents, and it's very important to really hear what the child said. Sometimes you're not in denial or you're stressing with the get it well. They brought so being aware of that, the prosecutor, um, and just being the one who's supposed to, to be on you know, sometimes threaten her. Parents that said, you're saying one lie, I'm going to send Well, she hasn't told me much about what happened. They had a trial. a little bit. They and basically attacked her. They humiliated you know, her. They made fun of her. her. We have to keep our minds open. There may be her more. family was physically threatened. And all we can do is um, let the child know. try to put their house on your terms at your time. Stoned at the house. When you yeah. say it's right, uh, it was I'm ready to hear more if you want. Three years before they could even get a judge to agree to hear. This I know case. it's kind of it's so a hot it button topic, but do you have any advice for about, parents about sleepovers, summer camp? There's really parents who won't ever let their kids spend the night at another child's house or go to summer awful. camp, and then there's the opposite, and somewhere in between. I mean, you think, and then how can you really know someone where they're going, you know, to spend the night? And so yeah. I think a few that, years ago, I lost contact. I think just as going to trial, you would investigate a daycare. You might think did they find you somehow because they didn't have the home in their own country to go over. And uh, they found me because I had been in terms of my, my experience. That had very few. And they identified me from that. They reached out to the people who put the educational I've had. They were looking for my you. contact. And they got in touch with that. And in contact what had happened is Lisa, an overnight kid. somehow just so... Not yeah, only got through all this, she's thrived. Many. She's a, what I call a, a thriver. <laughs> she's amazing. But she came to the U.S. And she got legal education. Well, the biggest threat and for she, a child, basically they had what they call a thematic hearing in the home. Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. Or have, you know, sued Bolivia in violation of human rights. That's just the con. And so there is this long hearing so when court, we do know that ruled when Bolivia and Remedial teenagers. They well. needed to establish by training, they needed to establish programs more likely to help victims to that consequence. So in Bolivia, sexual violence is more common. Fewer than it is. One in not about one in five boys. Oh, wow. 
uh, Reagan uh, affected. Reagan affected. <laughs> it's not and, about, you know, again, to Brisa, you know, she has a non-family structure of any kind. It's not about that. They have a huge success in Miami. Trying to That's one of the issues. But the recognition that and they tend to abuse kids. You should don't have it one. So trying to use the child, trying to use education and awareness of what would happen to they're, Here are these victims. They're the ones that are holding And I, I don't like to call them victims. So if you go to a sleepover, you go Anybody to a camp, you leave the camp. You leave that house. You say, that's a great, most children, a great point. And safe and not so the family created a, a website. And, and, and in the title of the website, it's Breeze of Hope, abreezeofhope.org, who we are. Let's look at a couple of cases. in the podcast text as well. So you had a patient, Brisa. And they want people to know. So, uh, so, so you and in you've sharing never met her, hoping to only her parents through email. Abuse. Tell me about and that. They're, and they're really so. Uh, the one with the need is the most. I did some of the while uh, she is here. Families in Bolivia. And you know they have. They did get Bolivia still very much learning something new day every day about the day disclosure of sexual abuse. Especially in the context. That's great. They had a march. And what that and, dynamic? Uh, I remember that Bruce's happened. How they, she indicated she was expecting. The first time they had it was a few years ago. And it, the Brisa was five fifteen at the time, and I never met yeah. her. I never met her parents. They can see the but things they're doing. Reached out to me because it's so I had slow. Published it because and also the government is not any information. Yeah, they were from Bolivia for the remedial. They are in Bolivia. It's held in Bolivia. And they they just put this. They, they have a very different view and of I think sexual it's because they help so many uh, people. They, it's not that they to them. It it helped them happen. They believe if it happens, it's really the child. It helped them with all those things. Mm. So, so it's really oh, the child. That's it. There's a little child miracle going on. Oh, because maybe they a big miracle going on. Cause that other person to go to jail. Really cause the family to be shamed. And so she sounds like she's doing amazingly well. Brisa's. Family. Is that often a side effect of before a child the tells not the, understand the su- suicidal tendencies? And so as we know, there's an epidemic in, in this country now injured. with um, mental health would not problems in kids and depression. No. In this case, he threatened uh, it, it, her. It's very common in the adolescent He threatened her with uh, the worst kind of things. Sometimes he knew her. Is, so he knew what related to the issues they experienced. But your parents would be devastated by the school tell us. So uh, he was a, a family man. Wasn't an immediate family member. I would say it's probably higher than the family members that I've seen um, compared. I'll do this to your sister. Not, and don't let me do it to you. Okay, yeah. so this went on, and then and again, background of it. That was her family when I believed that he was an upstanding young man. And that they and held she, him up as a role model. When families so come to a bank, we engaged in a community project in trying to build into me an education for so me in Bolivia. They went it together. So they had lots of access to her. But the number one most so I was just trying to help the parents. Family she was also suicidal. I just want my child to get therapy. I wanted that to help for him to get She finally came out and talked about it. That's encouraging. But family was the one that really tried to give her. never had a dress. 
about safe, secure, nurturing relationship. We used to family, parents, and siblings had that we never judged, because everything was against them. Very comprehensive. They brought it to court. The prosecutor, the one who in this country, the statistics that I've read is in four girls, every one in four will be abused in their lifetime, sexually abused. They humiliated her, her, that threatened her prediction for family relationships. So one in five. But one in five. Is it? But it does happen to boys. It was. I think that. Three might years be a misconception that's out there that it can't happen to, to boys. So yeah, it I was think that is a misconception. Horrendous. Um, we talk about you have the sexual abuse trauma, and then you have this whole other time horrific tra- trauma where you stop. Victim is the one on trial. She was the one who had but to defend herself. Also more and what's amazing in all of this uh, is they, they believed it happened, yeah. but it was so, her fault. You know, we I have a to do questionnaire. We of course so ask kids about a few years ago. I lost contact with them. Yeah, I knew them they were out, they going out at that time. Are they having trouble at school? Did they find you before, somehow because they like didn't they, have it no, 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 in no, their no, own country? <laughs> and I, I worry about because that. I had been developing some educational material. And they identified they me from that. They had reached out to, them, to so the people who put the educational material in the future. I worry about looking it, for my out. contact. And they got in touch yeah, with me. And I tell kids. What had happened is Brisa really helps. Somehow, not just to get just what happened to you out, but to get not only through all this, you thrive like a splinter. She's a, what I call it. You have a splinter in your fiber. And it hurts a whole lot. And she came to the U.S. that she got legal education. Hurt anymore. And so I, I did that where they had a what they call a thematic hearing. The Inter-American Commission by Human Rights. Yeah, it it does have Bolivia for violation of human rights. Just seeing where so there is this long hearing, and, and the court, the court ruled that Bolivia had to take sometimes remedial yeah. action. They needed to establish to training. They needed to establish programs. If it's something not like victims of violence, so in Bolivia, sexual violence is more common than it is here. It's like one in three girls, one in five boys. So it's something that they, I think, struggle and, with sometimes. You know, again, so Brisa, she has a nonprofit now. They've helped. When I was a, a news reporter at, just at one of the stations I worked at, and KSAT here in San Antonio, but all news stations, you hear the police and fire scanner all day, so and the assignment editor is listening, you know, for that. It's called Spot News that's happening, and most most of it is ends up being family violence and abuse that's happening and that was i mean as that's about and most of it doesn't make the news but you hear it all day as a reporter it was just horrible the family created a a website so it's it's more common than i think most people the title of the website is Breeze of Hope, a breeze of hope.org, who we are. And we'll put that in the um, podcast text as well. So they want people to know. It's so brave to share. And in sharing, they're hoping to prevent more abuse. And they're really no more than they're going where the need is the most. And they while she very is much aware. here, families in Bolivia, and you know they have, they did get day and they can put a day together. They and a day for that. You know, we have to remember that. Violence. That's great. They had March. 
advert yeah. at an event. Um, I remember talking about the kids, journal. So she indicated she was infecting. The first time they had it was a few years ago, and it, she was infecting the They have a caregiver that had um, challenges mm. mental health. They can see the things they're doing. All those things. It's so slow because the government is not stepping up yet. There are times when for the remedial children action, was a yes, that's going on in my home. But they, they just put you know, I've heard this person because they've been able to help so many. And the caregivers saying, never. They've reached out to them. So again, they don't cut in kids. They are very attentive. They very helped them with all those things that are going on in their home. And that's a that's a little miracle going on. Maybe a big miracle going on in Bolivia that's very heartening. Nancy, can you for the pediatric practitioner? Can you explain the process of how does the family get is to that you, often a side effect though before a child tells the child protective the su- services suicidal tendencies and what happens as we know there's so we have a an epidemic in in this country now with mental health so problems in kids and depression sexual abuse uh, it, it's, it's very common that we're talking uh, about like within 90 sometimes it is if it actually happened within 96 hours or you know what happened within But there's also, it's a lot of trauma. Or that it's child has some pain or bleeding. A lot of bullying. We want them to go to the hospital. And right now, I would say it's probably higher in the adolescent that I hospital. see compared to those that do not experience um, the children. Rather. And, uh, and then and we have, uh, again, it's so sometimes not that it was definitely older adolescent. From when I Mostly began it'll report. be quick many years ago. Much more increased. If it is beyond that, period of time and something that's when happened. families come to our clinic we are very then the report is trying to meet their needs so uh, their needs what will happen food, next then initially that child will get a forensic interview at child but day. the number one most common child say that then the family tell us about it i just want my child to get together be my child healthy him to get help and, and uh, do most cities, states they have a child protective services it's called that or is it called it depends the number to call when you suspect abuse, abuse is it yeah, it's called different number um, statewide number what? Uh, the sometimes families will call law enforcement for a situation. So law enforcement is also and in, in this country the, the statistics the that I've read is it, is it for girls every one in four will be abused in their lifetime, sexually abused. But like one in five reported uh, to the law that, enforcement who yeah, lost that coordination for boys is less common. So one in like five. one in 20, yeah. But one so, in five. Nancy, another child that stands out, is it, but it does happen, 11-year-old Rachel, because I think so she that had experienced numerous might be a misconception traumas. that's yeah. out Tell there me that about it can't happen her case. to boys. So, yeah, I think that uh, is a misconception. Rachel taught me a lot. <laughs> I really had to respect a little bit different focus. She was very upfront about uh, what she was going to allow allowed and what she allowed at home that I'd seen. And as I met her, but one thing I did realize with her before I share her story uh, close every child, every child so, that we see, you know, we have questionnaires, we of course, uh, unspoken fears, unspoken questions when they come to about what they're mad at, what they're afraid of. Are they having trouble? They're not sure whether to share those or not. And for boys, it's really likely to be shocked to try to not own it. I I worry about that because at the time point, jump to be able to share. I think they have to work on what happened to them. So Rachel came in and she had a lot of history. I worry about making out several different placements. Did it really help? She was there for not just to get what happened to you out, but to get. The feeling came in, and, uh, she did not want to blend to 
So I, I have to explain to you about that. Picking that why I heard four of them. And it hurts a whole okay. lot when you take it out, but then it tell me what they are. And then it, that's what she said, right. you know. So I, I use Don't that lie to me. younger kids sometimes. So don't give me shots. Important. I tell don't them. talk about my mother. But, yeah, it, it don't does happen to, to do something. Media, yeah, I will be aware of that because I think and boys, so I think, yeah, and sometimes people come in and, and they have more burdens and they have these demands and they have to be angered. And they're expecting us to say, and I don't like. You know, you can go away and come back another day. <laughs> I think they expect to push back. strong. And, and I said, okay, and let's talk about it. Okay, I promise not to side that they I've been struggling. I promise no shot. You can look at my arm and with have a shot. <laughs> I will when I was a good. news reporter and just you. at one of the stations I worked at, KSAT here in San Antonio, but all with you. news I, stations, you hear the police and fire scanner all day, and the assignment editor is listening you know, for that. Together. It's called Spot News yes. that's happening, yeah. and mo- most of it is ends up being family violence and abuse that's happening, and that was... I mean, as so what's that's, funny about that, and most of it doesn't make the news, but yeah. you hear it all day I, as a reporter. It was just horrible to hear, and she it's, about so it's, it's more common than I think most people uh, she talks realize. About everything that she yeah, did. She, it's a family violence is it's domestic um, violence. We always and she ask went about through the exam side. We had no issue. kid, and you know? we also asked her. But caregivers, I just, we ask them separately. There's always something to times Caregivers think, oh, okay, I was just thankful that she, she knew what she had to tell me about room, what the rules were. And they the have day. awareness. You know, the rules are but often children know more than and the caregivers think. Recognize and they are often very much trying to build that and they see sometimes. To me, it's always been a crowd on their caregivers the next day and they can put it together. I they understand what's going on. Can I build the bridge? We have to remember that. Violence in the home, adverse uh, childhood event. <laughs> we talk yeah, about the share kids. So because a lot of kids won't tell you that up front. What this is what I'll talk to you if this, this, and this. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Yeah, they don't. They don't tell you up front. It's up to you to try to figure it out as you go into the conversation. I try to understand there are times when what the children was saying. And so, and Rachel was protective of her mother. Seen or um, this person did not like her mother. <laughs> she blamed the her mother for all the different placements. So again, we don't credit kids. So they, it sounds like I mean, her mother had a lot of her own issues, and they were not getting out of their home completely or completely addressed enough for her to be a safe and It has an effect on them. And, and you know that Nancy, can you for the pediatric practitioner, can you explain the process of how does the family get to you or the child get to you if if the pediatrician calls child protective services? That's hard, Brandon. Then that is, that is. want every child. So we have a pretty good um, person protocol or They're potent. They're safe so person. When just not something the sexual abuse and it and she knew that because she was in those situations that that is what put her at risk. Yeah, I mean, she blamed. Happened with she blamed her mother for all her different. You know, I, I don't know exactly, and I didn't. More than a push her to do it because you know bleeding again. Their background, they can share as much of that as they right wish. now here in San Antonio. For me, it was more about whatever was going to work, whatever was going to make um, her feel better. I wanted to share. And then but as a medical provider, uh, I didn't have sometimes. I try to stay very focused on what I actually need. But mostly to know. it'll be quick to shut in. You yeah. know, I, I'm not going to. If it, uh, it's beyond that 
period delve of time into if something detail. has happened, at least I don't have to. Have if they that. want to share it and that helps, then them, that's the report great. is the first step. But I am not going to try to. Uh, what things. will happen next is that usually that. Any other take home messages uh, about Rachel that you would want the pediatric practitioner to know about in learning moments? Schedule the child to be seen. None that I can think of. I just think it. You know, being transparent and honest with kids. I think a lot of times when we're in a pediatric office, we have the caregiver there, we have the child there. We're not talking with the child alone. And so many times, I think we preferentially always talk to the parent. But talking to the child first, you say, you know, how are you doing today? Not how are we today or what's going on today to the parent, but addressing the child directly. I don't know if children are as used to that. And to let them know they have a voice in the checkup. That's a great point. And to say the child's name. Right, right. Nancy, another child that stands out is um, 11-year-old Rachel. So she had experienced numerous traumas. So this is what we're going to do. Tell me about her case. We're going to check your body from uh, head to toe. Rachel taught me a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I really had to respect her. Yeah, but she was very affecting the day she was going to allow. This is about their body, their their health. (laughs) And I met her. So understanding that the body deserves some respect is that every child and what that we see about. Has a set. That's really wonderful. Is there anything else you want to say about sexual abuse to the practitioner? And they're not sure what. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's just so really, it's really basic ways that I've learned that children can present to can expect a pediatrician to try to earn it. Consent to sexual and to try to hold them. First is that they told somebody. Well, and as we Rachel came in, she had a lot of ways that we find out. Been in several different. I think when a practitioner gets a call from a caregiver, my child just told me this, this, and this, and the child said it very clearly. Came in and of an age, she did not want the exam. Five and older. I said, well, tell me about it. So that. I have four. Well, seems like a legitimate statement. Okay, that is something that tell me you what know, they should are. be referred to even the hospital said, or to first she said, Don't lie to me. I don't think the pediatrician don't give me that child unless the parent don't has talk about my mother specific reason why they don't tell me man. to do something immediate uh, so they can be well, referred. I, I think where the trick is when the child tells someone. And so so I think have a very young yeah, child, sometimes people come in and, and they have these to make us they have these demands and they have the anger. And so and it's not always not clear that sexual abuse is a concern. You, know, you can go yeah. away and come back and that. <laughs> I think they expect the pushback. So those and are, I said, okay, you know, let's talk about it. Okay, okay. I promise not to lie. A lot of these kids are coming to me. <laughs> I promise no shots. You can look at my office. I have no shots <laughs> about their sexual behaviors. Um, I will not talk about you. And we've learned a lot about sexual behaviors. Children, we know that it's very frequent. There's a wide variety of sexual behaviors that young children. What I think we need to Children do for your health and can safety. Have. So and we can be knowledgeable about what's normal. So and what again, medicine is cooperative and can go a long way because always trying to get caregivers get vision when they see their children. And so what's funny about that is that she touching themselves totally every touching themselves when I agree to her not knowing what to do with it, getting angry with she talked about her mother. So the perception of caregivers sometimes she wouldn't affects the frequency um, of the behavior. And she went through the exam um, And I think a pediatrician no can issue. have a really yeah. important role in trying but to clarify what's normal. I just, normal. I, 
There's always and something clarifying the appropriate and responses to those. I was just thankful that she she knew what the third thing about happen. what the rules. And were is there anything the you want to we're mention we're specifically for the, the pediatric listener to uh, yeah that's to a, say so recognize behaviors in children and a whole other topic. We could do another podcast on that, but I will say in general, part of my job, children don't understand the social taboos. Yeah, like they don't know. But to pick the note to the point where they probably won't. No, you're not supposed to put your hand on your private to share with her. So it's not necessarily... A lot of kids won't tell you that up front. It's what, not this even is sexual. What, I'll talk to you if this, this, and this. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Don't, they don't tell you It's up to you to try to figure it out. So it's not always a sexual gratification to try to understand what I have each what their curiosity is. And, so, and Rachel was protective of her mother? Sometimes it's up to She did not like her mother. Blamed her mother for all the being appointed that she had to go to. Um, I think it older, sounds like her mother, mother had a lot of her there, own but they're more we're not getting COVID. We don't appropriately them really addressed enough for her to be a safe, secure But they're still very interested in sexual time. You know, that's all. Something you know, that obviously, if about, we have a child in who is engaged in sexual behavior they with didn't another child, and one or both, and that's hard or done, are very distraught. I want every child, child, one child <laughs> to be able to have a person. That's a situation you have to, that can be their, their person. You have to find out person. more about that. And that's just not something we can take for granted. And she knew Not that all of those because she was in those situations that that is what put her at risk. Like the age. Yeah. I mean, she blamed type. She blamed her mother for all her dear point. I, I don't know exactly, and I didn't want to push her to do it because, again, their background, they can share as much of that as they wish to. For me, it was more of a whatever was going to work for her, whatever was going to make her feel better, I wanted her to share. But as a medical provider, I didn't have to know that. I try to stay very focused on what I actually need to know. You know, I, I'm not going to to delve into details that I don't have to have. If they want to share it and that helps them, that's great. But I am not going to try to pull things out. Any other take-home messages about Rachel that you would want the pediatric practitioner to know about? Any learning moments? None that I can think of. I just think it's, you know, being transparent and honest with kids. I think a lot of times when we're in a pediatric office, we have the caregiver there, we have the child there. We're not talking with the child alone. And so many times, I think we preferentially always talk to the parent, but talking to the child first and just say, you know, how are you doing today? Not how are we today or what's going on today to the parent, but Addressing the child directly. I, I don't know if children are as used to that. And to let them know they have a voice in the checkup. That's a great point. And you to know? say the child's name. Right. Right. And, you know, explain. To say, so you're here for your five-year checkup today. So this is what we're going to do because we have to make sure you're healthy. We're going to check your body from head to toe, you know, and then we're going to do some tests. Yeah. But just... Respecting that they should have this information. This is about their body, their their health. <laughs> so understanding even a five-year-old deserves some respect for their role and what that pediatric visit is about. That's really wonderful. Is there anything else you want to say about sexual abuse to the practitioner? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's really three basic ways that I've learned that children can present to 
a pediatrician to office with concern for sexual abuse. So first is that they told somebody. And as we said before, this is the most common way that we find out about sexual abuse. I think when a practitioner gets a call from a caregiver, my child just told me this, this, and this, and the child has said it very clearly, and they're of an age, you know, five and older, where it seems like a legitimate statement, that is something that, you know, should be referred to either the hospital or to CPS immediately. I don't think the pediatrician needs to see that child unless the parent has some specific reason why they want to bring them in. So they can be referred. I think where the trick is when the child tells someone is that when you have a very young child, let's say a three or four-year-old, sometimes they'll make a statement that's difficult to interpret. And so it's not always clear that sexual abuse is a concern here, and it may require some further clarification. So those are, you know, that's the most common way sexual abuse. But a lot of these kids are coming to pediatricians because parents are concerned, caregivers are concerned about their sexual behaviors. And we've learned a lot about sexual behaviors in children. We know that it's very frequent. There's a wide variety of sexual behaviors that very young children, preschool children can have. So being knowledgeable about what's normal and what's not normal in terms of sexual behaviors can go a long way because sometimes caregivers get very anxious when they see their children sexually touching themselves too much or touching themselves in public, not knowing what to do with it, getting angry with the child. So the perception of the caregiver sometimes affects the frequency of the behavior. And I think a pediatrician can have a really important role in trying to clarify what's normal and clarifying the appropriate responses to those kinds of behaviors. So the third thing that can happen... And is there anything you want to mention specifically for the pediatric listener to yeah that's say so sexual behaviors in children is a whole nother topic (laughs) (laughs) we could do another Um, podcast on that but i will say in general as a rule of thumb if children don't understand the social taboos yet like they don't know you're not supposed to pick your nose in public they probably won't know you're not supposed to put your hand on your privates in public so it's not necessarily a deliberate action. It's not even sexual for some children. Maybe they have an itch or they're curious or they simply want to do something that would draw the caregiver's attention. So it's not always a sexual gratification motive behind these behaviors. It's curiosity. It's, it's a lot of different things. It's soothing. Sometimes it's self-soothing to children, and that's not bad, but sometimes it has to be redirected. It may not be appropriate. As they get older, these behaviors are still there, but they're more covert. We don't see them. We don't see kids doing this in public anymore, but they're still very interested in sexual topics. So obviously, if we have a child who is engaged in sexual behavior with another child and one or both children are very distraught by it, they're agitated, or one child is being very forceful, that's a situation you have to intervene with. And you have to find out more about that behavior to see what the best management is. Not all of those kids have to be reported to CPS. There's a lot of things to think about, like the ages of the children, the type of sexual behavior it is. Is it persistent? All of those things have to be considered. So it gets complicated when we get to that. So, you know, there's there's clinical report in AAP on sexual behaviors of children. We're getting ready to redo that. 
sexual behaviors is really on a spectrum. So there's some things that are completely normal, and then other things are gray zone, and then there's some that are clearly not normal, require intervention treatment, and sometimes reporting. So being kind of aware of those types of behaviors and being able to guide the caregiver. Many of the ones we get are in the normal range, but the caregiver doesn't like it, and they're worried that something's happened to the child. And many times that's just not something that we find or we're not able to determine that that happened. So sexual behavior is a big topic, but it's one that, you know, it's probably presents the pediatrician's offices not infrequently. And we could put the, the AEP link about sexual behaviors you, in there? You can. But, um, and you're working on that? With- well, well, it's not going to be for a while before it comes out. I'm working on it with Dr. Kassoon, actually. And so the reiteration of the original one, which I did when I was on the AAP committee, that'll be coming sometime in a couple of years, probably, the way the process is. And that's Dr. Natalie Kassoon, who's part of the child abuse pediatric team, a doctor on the team here at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Yeah. So that's that's important. There's just so many things to think about with sexual behavior. And cultural factors are also very big because different cultures and ethnicities view these behaviors differently, too. So the perspective, again, of the caregiver, their culture, their background, their own experiences can play into the interpretation of these behaviors. So just keeping that in mind. And the third way that these children can present to a pediatric office is with some type of genital complaint. So maybe there's redness there, there's irritation, there's a discharge, there's maybe even some blood, and the caregiver is concerned that this is trauma, that this could be sexual abuse. And so those those children would obviously need to be examined. But I will say that in the absence of a history or anything else, most of the time those kids with genital complaints are going to have something else. It's not going to be trauma. It can be something else that mimics trauma, or it can be trauma that's not due to sexual abuse. So, for example, children can get small anal fissures that cause spots of blood in the underwear or the diaper, and that is a common cause of of seeing blood in the diaper or the underwear. That has nothing to do with sexual abuse. Right, right. So so those are the three basic ways. Okay. Anything else you want to, this is, has been so enlightening. Anything else? You- it's important just as Child Protective Services does not always find abuse. Neither do we at Center for Miracles. And so the way that we like the system to be is to have a low, threshold for reporting at the front line. So those are the pediatricians, the hospital folks, the emergency department folks. We want low threshold. And then if we look at the injury, usually what happens is we identify additional information we need to have. It might be scene information. It might be more details from the parent. It might be details from the child. So we, through Child Protective Services, get this additional information, and very often it goes from a suspicion to either non-specific or no concerns, and that's okay because we're watching out for kids. That's the whole goal here. So it's been a nice system for working that way because then we less likely to miss children that really do need help. 
really do need those assessments. So if you suspect something, call Child Protective Services just as that, just the suspicion. Suspicion is all the law requires for you to report. And again, you're not making a decision. You're not making a determination. You're saying, I'm suspicious more is needed to look into this. That's what you're saying. You know, you're not going to do everything. You're not going to do the investigation. So I think it's, and sometimes if pediatricians get frustrated, oh, nothing happened. Know that there's a lot that happened in between, but they may not be aware of the additional information that was collected. I know you've made such a difference and you continue to do that, and, but you consider your family your greatest contribution. And here on Pediatrics Now, we like to promote having a life outside of medicine with all of the high stress of this career and high burnout. You enjoy hiking and camping with your family? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, with, I, am, I never take it for granted that I was blessed enough to be able to give a safe, secure, nurturing relationship to my children. So many families I meet, by no fault of their own, they just have too many challenges, are not able to do that for their children. So for me, being able to provide that, it's just, that's why it's my greatest accomplishment. I was able to do that for them. And my work has made me understand how important a gift that is, you know. So, but getting away from it all and and really having a whole different perspective of there's a whole other world out there and just becoming immersed in looking around you beyond your your only your very small universe, look at the big universe and just understand that you're one piece in the big picture. It's always helped me with perspective and being able to come back and get back to work. <laughs> It just, we, we did camping with my kids all through their childhood years, and I, I hope they had good memories with that. I think they did, but it was just a wonderful time. And again, you didn't have cell service when we went. It's so, <laughs> so nice. Phones were off, or even if they were on, they weren't working. <laughs> and it was just wonderful to be able to devote that time to each other and just talking and just reconnecting. You know, my kids will connect with each other. It just—it was just a great time that we all look forward to. And so we just try to keep that tradition through all the way up until about high school. That's really beautiful. And I'm going to edit this part back in. But I one question I forgot is, do you want to say anything about social media and sexual abuse there? Or yeah, also so, a whole other... Right. It's, it's so... Our concept of sexual abuse has expanded greatly and not in a good way. And so we have trafficking now. We have a lot of children involved in pornography. We have, unfortunately, a lot of adolescents involved, a lot of them not by choice, with sexting. So they will receive nude pictures from random strangers. For some, it's distressing. For others, they think it's funny. I, I worry a little bit about that being a new norm mm. for kids because I, they kind of giggle about it when they tell me, and I, I'm just concerned because I have seen situations where these sex that have been used for blackmail have <laughs> mm-hmm. been Awful. used to humiliate kids, have been used as a form of bullying, and so they can be, it's, it's, a, it's a huge leverage for someone to have over an adolescent. So I think, again, a lot of the adolescents I see, they're meeting somebody online 
and they're having, they're meeting up with them and then not expecting and not prepared to protect themselves. And then they're being sexually assaulted. So they're very open with their trust and are worried about what I call the self-protective skills. And, you know, when I work with them and work with families, I tell them, you know, what I really hope from all this is that they learn to protect themselves. They begin to recognize and anticipate the dangers because the choices they're making are sometimes devastating choices in terms of lifelong adversities that they face. Is the sexual abuse online, is that that's happening with photos, words, videos, and then sometimes someone in person trying to connect with them? Yeah, so it's all different types now, not just about touching anymore. It's verbal, it's harassment. Again, there's a spectrum of behaviors that are highly concerning. Exploiting people, that's very worrisome to me, and it just seems that so many kids are at risk for it. And anything you want to mention quickly just about how do we protect our our children from that? Is it know what they're looking at online? I know. <laughs> I know. How does, yeah. How do we do that? It's like, yeah. And there's all these new website, news, social media stuff. It's how do you access that? And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not okay. on social media at all. I'm not either anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I've long given that up. I, I ask them, what do they do when they get these images from people they don't know or they do know? And many of them just say, oh, I just block them. And I said, well, why don't you have a conversation with your parent about it too? So again, going, harkening back to the importance of a parent-child connection, I'm not sure parents can completely protect their kids from this, which is worrisome. But they can be there for them to help them make the healthy choices when they get to that point. Remember, so if the adolescent is trying to decide, do I send a new picture of myself or not? And the next thought is, what would my parents say? That's going to be a modifier. So again, building those very strong, healthy, close relationships can be a preventative measure for things like that when they get into trouble with social media. That's great advice. Dr. Nancy Kellogg, Division Chief for Child Abuse, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. And Dr. Nancy Kellogg with the University of Texas Health Science Center, University Hospital, and the Center for Miracles. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for listening to Pediatrics Now. Don't forget to click on the link in this podcast for a free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. For episode ideas, you can email me. Go to our website, pediatricsnowpodcast.com. You'll find my email address on there. I'd love to hear feedback and let me know what you think. If you know anyone who may be interested in Pediatrics Now, please share. I'm Holly Wayment. Thank you so much for listening and for making a difference. One pediatrician said to me the other day, it's really hard to be a pediatrician these days. We hope by listening to the podcast, 
We can help make it easier. We can give you the updates that you need and topics that you want to know more about.